Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. Now, in this week's show, signs that eating soy seem to stop breast cancer from coming back. We'll find out why. Also, why a case of mistaken identity could mean that some fish species are in a lot more trouble in terms of low numbers than we actually first thought. And lost for words. New analysis has shown that even the best writers appear to run out of new words to use. And I hope, Helen, that you're not in that position now. You're on your second book. Thanks, Chris. I hope so, too. Also, this week, we're taking a fresh look at the swine flu pandemic. We'll be hearing from a scientist who thinks he's found evidence that the pandemic was actually man-made. We'll also hear how the virus is becoming increasingly resistant to the antiviral drug Tamiflu. But there is some good news, too. We'll hear how vaccines, which are very effective at stopping flu, are made. And we'll talk to a scientist who's found out a way to block flu by infecting people with something else. Chris? Sounds like infection. Just listening. Thank you, Helen. And of course, coughs and sneezes do spread diseases, talking about the flu, but how quickly do they do it? Well, in this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave have been inhaling pepper, all in the name of research, in front of a high-speed camera too, in order to measure the speed of a sneeze. And we'll show you how fast it does go later on in the programme. Plus, Diana has been tackling a very electrifying problem in this week's Question of the Week. If you had a taser and you tasered an elephant, would you actually live to tell the tale? How strong are these things? The elephant or the taser? The answer's coming up either way. Uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can Twitter at us, of course, at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. A quandary which has had people worried for some time if they've had breast cancer is whether or not they should eat soy. Because some people have raised the question that soy contains a lot of chemicals called phytoestrogens. These are plant estrogens. They're a family of chemical co- chemicals called isoflavones. And so some people have suggested that these chemicals could interact with things like tamoxifen, an agent used chemotherapeutically to treat breast cancer and stop it coming back. And therefore, should people who have had breast cancer be advised not to eat things with these phytoestrogens in them. Well, a big study has been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, this week. It's by Vanderbilt researcher Zhao Xu and colleagues. And what they did was to use data collected on 5,000 women in China who had been part of something called the Shanghai Breast Cancer Survival Study. And as part of that study, very large and extensive amounts of information about risk factors and lifestyle, drug exposure and so on and so forth for breast cancer had been collected. And what they then did was to compare how much people had in the way of soy in their diet 
and and in terms of whether they had breast cancer coming back afterwards or not, and whether they actually died of breast cancer. And they followed up these people for a median time of about 3.9 years. And what they found was really striking. The people who had the highest amounts of soy in their diet had a 30% lower risk of death and about a 32% lower risk of the disease coming back compared with the people who ate the least amount of soy in their diet. Now, they don't know exactly why there is this association, but these phytoestrogens do seem to do things to oestrogen in the blood, and we know that some breast cancers are stimulated to grow more by the presence of things like oestrogen in the bloodstream. And these phytoestrogens, the soy-based oestrogens, reduce the level of oestrogen synthesis in the blood. They also stop the oestrogen interacting with chemical docking stations, the receptors on cells which bind oestrogen, they also raise the level of chemicals in the blood that bind oestrogen and stop it getting onto tissue. So there are all these possibilities that could explain why this observation has been made, but the one surefire conclusion is there's no evidence that soy is bad if you've had breast cancer, and it may actually help to reduce the risk of it coming back. Can we rule out that it's something else about the lifestyle of the the soy eaters that's also helping them to survive better and combat the disease? Spot on. And this is an association... This is an association, not causation. So that's absolutely right. What they've done is to show there is this association between eating a lot of soy and the disease not coming back. The peak dose that people seem to need was about 11 grams a day, but it may also, as you quite rightly point out, be something about the lifestyle or the diet in those people, and they're going hunting to try and find out what it is. Well, as we all know, breast cancer is a big problem, so the more we understand about ways of combating it, the better. Also this week, we have news of an endangered fish. And the problem is, what we thought was one species is in fact two, so they could both be doing much worse than we thought. And this case of a fishy mistaken identity involves the white marlin. Now, these are magnificent ocean-going fish. They can weigh in at over 80 kilos, which is bigger than me, and the rotor over three metres long, which is also bigger than me. Um, But the problem is that uh, they are the prized target of a multi-million dollar sport fishery. And they're also caught in huge numbers accidentally by longline fisheries, which are actually after other fish like tuna and swordfish. Now, um, a a team of researchers, uh, co-led by Lawrence Beer, Kirsha from the NOAA Fisheries Service and Mahmoud Shivji from the Guy Harvey Research Institute, both of them in America. They've published the uh, study in the journal Endangered Species Research, which shows that what we thought was white marlin, quite a lot of them, in fact up to 30% of recent records, could be a lookalike species, and it's called the round-scale spearfish. Now this does look extremely like the white marlin. I don't think I would know the difference by looking at them. But um, actually, just a couple of years ago, we discovered this new species through genetics. And what uh, Mahmoud and Lawrence have done is they've gone and analysed this to find out just how wrong we've been recently about how many white marlin are being caught. And uh, the, the worrying picture that they're painting is that, yes, quite a lot of the fish that are being caught are in fact a different species, these spearfish. But we don't really know how much that has changed as we go back in, into the past. And this really has a great influence on, on the assessments of how both those species have been doing and that will feed into how we've been protecting them and the conservation measures that we're going to need to look at them both. So really what this is, is it's sending the scientists back to the drawing board. We're going to have to really reassess both these species and find out information once again sort of from scratch um, about how they're both doing. And uh, I, th- I think 
what this study is also really highlighting to us is that sometimes we think of taxonomy, that science of species identification, as, as a, maybe a bit of a dusty, old-fashioned pursuit that's confined to the corridors of, of museums. But far from it, what we're really seeing is just how important it is for us to understand what species there are in the world, especially many of the ocean-dwelling species that we're busy hunting towards extinction. So not always true, there are plenty more fish in the sea. Sadly not. Indeed. Thanks, Alan. Um, Now, another interesting thing that's come out this week is uh, a new way to better repair arteries. Now, if you'd had coronary artery disease, in other words, blockage in a heart blood vessel causing heart disease probably about 20 years ago, the best way to treat you would have been a heart bypass. You would have had to have had your chest opened up, the coronary blood vessels exposed, and then a piece of uh, usually vein, but blood vessel taken from somewhere else in the body and used to bridge the blockage in the artery in order to restore blood flow. But in recent years, this has been replaced by the technique of angioplasty. What you do is thread a fine tube, usually up through an artery in the leg, into the heart blood vessels, squirt some dye down to see where the blockages are, and then you inflate a balloon where the blockages are, open up the occluded or blocked bit of artery and restore the blood flow. The problem is that after you do that, the artery blocks up again, probably because the injury that's done when you squeeze it open with this balloon inflation then causes cells in the artery to regrow. So in more recent years, what doctors have done is to start inserting little metal cages called stents. So when you open up the artery, you then prop it open with these metal stents. The problem is that some people then get those stents furring up again, and this is probably because cells that lie in the blood vessels overgrow around the stent, and again, you get another blockage. So what they then did was to start making something called a drug-eluting stent. So this is the kind of Rolls-Royce of stents. These stents actually produce drugs which stop cells from growing, and they're very, very effective. They stop people getting any more recurrences of heart disease after their arteries have been treated. But in a small minority of cases, some people do get more problems again, including blood vessels blocking up, blood clots and heart attacks, the very thing that this is designed to prevent. So why? Well, no one really understood why this should happen in just a small minority of people, but a group of researchers over in Harvard, this is Vijaya Kola Chalama, who's a researcher at Harvard, has published a paper in the journal PLOS One this week where they have the answer. What they've done is to build a very clever computer model which can predict how blood flows down an artery, especially if the artery's got a branch in it, and what happens when you put one of these metal cages, one of these stents, in the artery. And what they're finding is they can then model how the concentrations of the drugs coming out of the change downstream and also within the stent itself. For instance, at one end of these stents, when they're only about a centimetre long, the drug will be 11% higher concentration than at the other end. So this may help to explain exactly why this occurs in the first place and how we can stop it. And so what the researchers are saying is that, for one, this can immediately teach us how we can make better stents in future to avoid this problem, and two, in the future, it might be possible to take pictures or to get dimensions of a patient's arteries and then use that, plug it into the model they've designed, and work out better ways to treat their arteries to avoid the problem so they don't have heart attacks in the future. Finally this week, we've got a new piece of computer software that can read a book's literary fingerprint, and that's unique to the author who wrote it. So it turns out that as a book gets longer, even the very best writers eventually start to run out of new words to use. But the rate at which new words drop off depends on the skill of the author, and it's always the same for each author, giving them a unique word frequency fingerprint. Now, this is all based on analysis of books and stories by three great writers, Herman Melville, Thomas Hardy and D.H. 
Lawrence, and a team of researchers from Sweden, led by Sebastian Bernardson. And they've come up with the idea that inside every writer's head is a meta-book. And what writers reach into this own personal meta-book and pull out the words that they want to put down on the paper or type out on the computer screen. And that was uh, published in the New Journal of Physics. And it's really providing new insights into the way that language is used, especially by the world's greatest writers. Now, I don't claim to be one of those great writers, but I do wonder if you plugged my book into this software, how it would come out. Um, And the team uh, is actually planning to do similar research on other literary works, so perhaps I shall volunteer mine. And uh, eventually they're going to see if it's possible to actually um, identify an unidentified author um, from the fingerprint left in their words. So are you saying that in the same way as they say musicians have only got so many songs that they can ever make, that, that a writer can only write so many books? I don't think that's it. I think what it is is that you've got a pool, this sort of meta book, the pool of words, and that's where you will draw all... It's almost like they all, the potentiality of all the books you'll ever write, um, and you're just going to put them together in, a, in the right order, but from those words, and, and that will re- affect um, the overall fingerprint, the structure of the works that you're, you're going to produce. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. It's Chris Smith and Helen Scales. And this week, we've got a dose of the flu. Not literally, thankfully. We will be exploring the story of the swine flu pandemic, how it originated earlier this year in 2009, how the vaccines that are being used to combat it actually get made. And we'll also be investigating the role of protecting viruses. These are harmless infections that can actually help to keep the nastier ones at bay. If you'd like to join in, you can, of course, email us, chris at thenakedscientists.com, or you can send us a tweet. Our Twitter name is at Naked Scientists. Helen. Right, well, now it's time to join Dave Ansell and Ben Valsler, who are rather lovely, wonderfully, trying to catch a sneeze on camera. For this week's Kitchen Science, we have a very contagious experiment as we're finding out how fast the flu travels when you sneeze. We've come out to a park in the middle of Cambridge. We're hiding behind an ice rink because they have a convenient black wall. Dave, why do we need a black wall to find out about how fast a sneeze travels? Well, I have a high-speed camera, and so what I thought we could do is try and sneeze, ideally with a bit of water on our mouths so there's something to see, and then video it in very high speed, and then go back and have a look over the video and see how fast a sneeze actually is. So how can we tell from a high-speed video how fast something's travelling? Well, you know the rate at which the video camera is taking frames and you look at the distance it's travelled in five or six frames, you know how far it's travelled and how long it's taken, and from that you can work out the speed. You've sellotaped a sheet of paper onto this black wall. What are we using that for? Well, it's a good distance measurement. It's about 30 centimetres long, so we know that if the sneeze travels the length of an A4 paper, it's travelled about 30 centimetres. So we're using that as a gauge. Very clever. Now, here's the bit that I'm not looking forward to, but how are we planning on making ourselves sneeze? As you might be able to tell from my voice, I can certainly tell from the way my nose feels. I've been doing a load of experiments with pepper, which doesn't work quite as well as it does in all the films. But I'm getting to the point now where I could just about sneeze if I had to. Snorting paper does really quite hurt, as I'm experiencing at the moment, so don't try this at home. Well, sneezing on demand is certainly an acquired skill and one that you don't have to do very often. But I guess we better try and get this done before your pepper wears off. So assume the position in front of the camera, and when you're ready, sneeze. <laughs> that was a good one. I'm so glad that we don't have to try and catch me sneezing. Did you catch that on camera? 
Yeah, we seem to have something which looks okay. I'll take this inside somewhere a bit warmer and less noisy. We'll try analysing it. Okay, so we're going to go back to the office, have a look at our high-speed sneeze footage, and come back later in the show to let you know quite how fast the flu really can travel. Well, I must say, I am quite glad that the guys didn't choose me to be the one to sneeze on camera. But we shall join them again later to find out just how speedy Dave's sneezes are. The things that Dave will do in the name of science. Anyway, talking of coughs and sneezes spreading diseases, that does include the flu. That's the one thing we're looking at here on The Naked Scientist this week. And if you look back over history, flu pandemics come roughly every 30 years or so, and that occurs when a new strain of the virus begins to circulate in the human population. But where do these new flus actually come from? Well, in the past, we've implicated birds. We think they might be partly to blame. But this time, with the 2009 swine flu pandemic, we're not quite so sure. And some scientists think that this pandemic may even have been man-made. Adrian Gibbs is a virologist and he's based in Canberra in Australia. Well, the problem that I'm interested in and my, with my two colleagues is where has this flu, this new pandemic flu come from? Because if you really want to stop a a pandemic occurring, the best thing is to try and nip it in the bud at the very beginning. We've got to try and learn where these pandemics are coming from, what, what the conditions are. Then we can decide how we can best control them. What are the present theories about how they arise? Well, the simplest theory that has been put out is that perhaps it's an entirely natural um, occurrence. We believe that most flus are getting around in birds, so presumably it's got around in birds. However, this new flu shows no relationship with birds. All of its most immediate um, ancestors are viruses of pigs. Therefore, you've got to believe, well, it's got around in pigs. But the real problem with that is that it clearly has three separate parents. And one of those parents was in North America some years ago. One was in Southeast Asia and one was in Europe. So you've got to think of getting three pigs from different parts of the world together to make the new virus. So what you're saying is when you sort of molecularly interrogate the genetic history of of what we're seeing as the H1N1 swine flu pandemic, you can see that it must have three independent bits of parentage. And the big question is, well, how on earth did all those parents come together to infect the first person who got this. That's right. So if they got together by pigs, for example, say through live pig trade between continents, it means that quarantine, which has worked for dozens of years in the past, has somehow or other broken down on at least two occasions. If you've got to get three things together in one part of the world, one might be there originally, the other two have to come through quarantine to leave a country and come through quarantine to get into a country. So that's one possibility. The other possibility which we um, have uh, put into this paper that we've published is that we've been thinking, could it have got together by some sort of laboratory error? We know that virologists pass viruses from one another around the world for use in their laboratories, for identification, for making vaccines and so on. What sort of conditions might three viruses have got together in one place in order to be able to shuffle their genes and produce the new pandemic flu. That's a fairly scary suggestion, though, that this thing that has cost the earth, I mean, quite literally cost the earth in terms of the number of people who have caught it, days off work, pandemic preparedness, giving people antivirals, preparing a vaccine, the cost is tremendous. And if that is man-made, that's a terrible thought. Yes, that's certainly true, but the data as it stands at the moment 
doesn't distinguish between a man-made problem in a laboratory and a man-made problem in the quarantine. And the reason is that the gene sequences that have been analyzed to produce this result are all from more than 10 years ago. 10 to 17 years ago was the last time that those particular sequences were seen. So there's this big gap in the middle. And what is actually required then is to try and find those intermediate sequences. And then we might be able to distinguish between these two theories. I see. So what you're saying is that when you look at the present-day pandemic genetic sequence and you ask when did the parent sequences that must have made that pandemic last circulate somewhere in the world, the last time they were reported as picked up anywhere was, was more than 10 years ago. That's right. And that's a long gap. So we're not sure. We know that those parents were in these three places. North America provided six of the genes of this flu, and one gene each came from Europe, and another one came from Southeast Asia. We should obviously then institute a search for these, and probably some people are looking for them. For example, there are some, many parts of the world where pig populations are not being sampled for swine flu. For example, South America. The other possibility is that it's in one of the labs that has these three strains of virus in it. And one at least of those strains is um, very close, if not identical, to a strain which is commonly used in swine influenza vaccines. That's vaccines for pigs to protect them against flu. And so there's a real possibility that it came through vaccine manufacture and probably not even known to the people who have done it. So how would something like the new H1N1, if it were the progeny of a, a vaccine being made, how would that get out of the lab and then into the human population? What would be the, the mechanism? Well, the simplest of all the possibilities is that in the making of one of these swine vaccines, which are often multivalent, that is that they've got more than one virus in the vaccine. So what they do is they grow up each virus individually, take the particles of the virus, which are going to make the vaccine, put them together and then kill the virus by adding formaldehyde or propionolactone. This sterilizes the virus. They put this mixture then of three dead viruses into the pig. The pig then becomes immune. But if, for example, one unfortunate morning, somebody forgot to put the sterilant into the mixture, then a pig would be simultaneously infected with three viruses and those three viruses might grow, shuffle genes, and have produced the new virus. So that's the simplest possible mechanism. But there are other possibilities. Which are? Well, for example, we know that flu can grow in cultured cells. Many laboratories are now going over to using cultured cells to uh, do the flu work. And there is a paper uh, published saying that if you put flu into these cells, um, it grows for a bit and you can detect it, but eventually it becomes latent in those cells. Now, those cells are passed from lab to lab. And so it could be that a cultured cell that is being shared between laboratories is carrying the virus between laboratories. And so, again, it's entirely feasible um, to think of scenarios in which the three viruses could have got together in a, in a laboratory. Feasible, yes. Uh, is it realistic, though? It is realistic. There are the historic examples. We know that viruses get out of laboratories. I mean, you've had this terrible epidemic of foot and mouth disease in Britain recently, which cost the country millions and millions of pounds. But there are examples even from flu. There was a flu virus circulating in the human population, which disappeared in 1957, and then it reappeared in 1997. 
And the one that appeared in 1997 had not changed at all from when it disappeared in the 1950s. And so it had not been growing. It had been hidden away, frozen somewhere, perhaps. And so the safest conclusion is that it was in a laboratory somewhere. You had a young person working in the lab who had not got antibodies against the earlier strain, got infected, and uh, then spread it out into the community. So there are precedents. Quite scary, though, those precedents, Adrian. Do you think, therefore, that what we should do is to institute better regulation to make sure this doesn't happen again? I'm sure that that would be a very good idea. Another thing which would um, help restore confidence in what's going on is that uh, laboratories should be required to keep a register of all the viruses that they have in stock so that when, for example, a new pandemic occurs, that WHO could have already in its possession a list of all the viruses that are being studied. But meanwhile, scientists are still looking for the source of this year's swine flu. And who knows, it could have come from a laboratory. Quite scary to think it could have been man-made. That was a Canberra-based virologist, Adrian Gibbs. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. Right, well, we're talking flu, and uh, many countries have responded this year to the swine flu pandemic by giving people who have flu symptoms a course of an antiviral drug called Tamiflu, Ozaltamivir. But now we're seeing patients who are infected with swine flu viruses that are coming up with resistance to this drug. And to explain how this happens and what the consequences might be, we're joined now by Professor James Wood. He's the director of the Cambridge Infectious Diseases Consortium. I thought perhaps we should start off by just um, going into some detail about how Tamiflu actually works. This is a drug that, that interferes with one of the two uh, surface proteins of influenza, the neuraminidase, and it stops the um, or dramatically inhibits the production of uh, infectious viruses from infected cells. So how how is it that uh, then we see some resistance occurring to this particular to this particular to, to Tamiflu? Yes, exactly. The, the use of any drug, just as with antibiotics in patients with the infection that's trying to stop, creates a lot of pressure on the infection to either evade the drug that's being used or to or to die. And um, although viruses aren't exactly living, they behave like living beings within cells, and because they have a replication machinery that allows them to mutate very quickly, they can actually, with very simple um, changes that might just occur by chance, create a strain of, of virus that's the same in any way apart from the fact that it's resistant to the drug if they're replicating in the face of the drug. So the nuts and bolts of this is the genetic mechanism by which, which viruses work and that we get mutations in that and that's when the resistance comes in. That's absolutely right and that's very similar to the development of any drug resistance in either viruses or bacteria. So it was just a matter of time until we saw some resistance coming up to Tamiflu? I think so. And I think what matters is whether or not the um, the drug-resistant form of the infection is transmitting widely. Um, Do we have any idea if it is? Well, I think at the moment that um, my understanding of the data is that that there are a few sporadic cases where drug resistance has been detected, but it's not being transmitted widely in the community. So most strains that people are being infected with are still not resistant. Do we understand what it is about a particular resistance that makes it become widespread or not, or is that another big question mark? Well, I think that's a big question mark, and and, um, many changes that occur in in many infections are frequently deleterious, and so you might think that change towards Tamiflu resistance might actually make the, the virus slightly less good at transmitting, 
and therefore you'd be more likely to catch a form of the infection that's not carrying the Tamiflu resistance. But I think that where you might expect to see widespread transmission of resistance is when the drug is being used very, very widely. So are we seeing it as a big problem in the UK at the moment? Well, my or? understanding of it is that it's not a significant problem at the moment and that, that most people who are treated with Tamiflu, the virus that the drug is meeting is not resistant to it at the moment. We see this resistance occurring and, it, and perhaps to some extent it's a little bit uh, inevitable that it will happen. Um, what can we do about it? Well, I think that one of the most obvious ways is to try and make sure that people who are um, receiving Tamiflu um, but are still infected um, are not walking around in very high-risk situations in terms of transmission. And so a degree of quarantine would be a very good, well, I mean, a very effective means of, of stopping people transmitting drug-resistant virus. So ultimately, um, give someone Tamiflu, keep them on their own until we know that they've got better and, uh, and there's no problem. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, you're not talking about a long-lived infection with influenza. Um, the majority of people have stopped, um, stopped shedding large amounts of virus within a few days. Well, thanks, James. That's Professor James Wood, Director of the Cambridge Infectious Diseases Consortium, giving us a bit of a lowdown on how monitoring drug-resistance disease um, in, in things like Tamiflu that we're using already um, is being controlled and, uh, and ha- what effect it's likely to have. If you've got any questions at all about flu or about Tamiflu, um, do get in touch now. The email is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Helen. Now, from uh, drugs that you can use to treat flu once it's taken hold to vaccines, which can actually stop the virus in its tracks before it gets inside of us and infects us. This week, Mira Senthalingam has been down to find out how flu vaccines actually work and just what's involved in making them. In light of the current swine flu pandemic, pharmaceutical companies have had to step up the production of their vaccines in order to protect the population. But just what's inside a flu vaccine to give us immunity to this potentially deadly virus? And how is it kept up to date with what's currently circulating in our population? To find out, I met Tarit Mukherjee from University College London. So the main component of every flu jab is essentially the HA protein, the hemagglutinin protein. It's a surface protein on the top of the virus, the the flu virus itself. It's split from the virus itself, then purified and made safe for injection into human beings. And it's this protein that forms the basis of the immune response. So the immune system recognises this protein, assimilates it, and then should you be infected by the influenza strain carrying the same protein, it will seek to attack it and destroy it. What are the main challenges facing flu vaccine production? So I guess the first challenge is producing the the vaccine strain, the production strain of the influenza. There are two techniques that you can use. One is classical reassortment and the other is reverse genetics. With the reassortment, what you want to create is a high-yielding production strain that encodes for the HA protein that's circulating the wild-type strain. With reverse genetics, because of our ability to manipulate genes the way we can, we essentially engineer six plasmids for the production and two plasmids that will have our HA and NA proteins, these virus surface proteins, and try and combine these plasmids into a cell to produce a a virus of interest. So essentially the production strain that's generally used is something that's good at reproducing, and then this is being combined with a strain that's in circulation and found in our environment at the moment, so that you then get a high-yielding vaccine that will stimulate the immune response that you want. That's exactly right. So you want those virus components, those virus surface proteins that will help to stimulate the immune system, but you also need to have it in a format that can grow well in whatever culture method you're using.
Tarit Mukherjee from University College London. And as Tarit mentioned, once you have the strain of virus that you want to replicate, it then needs to be cultured to multiply the amount you have available for vaccines. Chicken eggs have been used for tens of years and are a trusted and known method used by many pharmaceutical companies, including GlaxoSmithKline. So explaining more about this egg-based technique, here's John Dillon, Medical Director of GlaxoSmithKline's Pandemic Centre of Excellence. Well, we use millions of eggs and we take that seed strain and we inject it into the eggs. Then the eggs will replicate the virus so that you get lots of copies of the virus within the eggs and then we essentially harvest them, purify it and we then inactivate the viruses and we make sure that we've got enough antigen as a result of the inoculation of all those millions of fertilised eggs. When are chick eggs ready to be injected with these viruses? So at what age do they use? So the, the fertilised embryos are usually at around 10 or 11 days when they're injected and then the virus is allowed to grow for several more days before the, the, the virus is then harvested from the eggs. It's obviously quite labour-intensive. It requires a lot of chick embryos. So how do you kind of scale up this process when a pandemic occurs? I can't pretend it hasn't been a major effort and ramping up to that level of production, probably a tenfold increase, is part of the challenge overall of trying to respond to a pandemic. But we have been prepared for it. You know, we're, we're now in a situation where we are able to fortunately meet the demand that's been created by governments around the world. John Dillon from GlaxoSmithKline. So whilst the use of chicken eggs has helped us to meet the demand for both our seasonal and pandemic flu vaccines, it still has its limitations. And as a result, companies such as Baxter Pharmaceuticals and Novartis have begun using cell culture methods as well. And so to find out more about this newer technique, I spoke to Reno Rapuwali, head of vaccine research at Novartis. The technology that we came up with is based on culturing the virus in mammalian cells, growing in fermenters instead of using eggs. We let the virus grow into the cells, and then, like 48 hours later, when the virus multiplied to very high yields, we harvest the virus and purify the virus, then we kill it. Then we purify the essential components of the virus, which are important to make a vaccine, which are the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. And in a week, we can be ready for large-scale manufacturing. But the majority of H1N1 pandemic influenza vaccine is still largely being carried out using egg-based influenza vaccine. For the future, I see cell culture will slowly become the method of choice. But today, for this pandemic, we are still largely dependent on egg-based manufacturing. That was Reno Rapuwali from Novartis Pharmaceuticals. And before that, University College London's Tarot Mukherjee and GSK's Medical Director John Dillon speaking to Almira Synthalingham about the challenges facing flu vaccine production today and how this looks to change in the future. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Now we've had a question from Christina and she wants to know, where did the old saying, feed a cold, starve a fever, come from? Chris, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, well, actually, it's part right, part wrong. Um, mostly part wrong. Uh, the, the feeder cold is absolutely right. Starver fever is probably absolutely wrong. Um, there was a paper that got published, and we reported it on The Naked Scientist last year. It was in the Physiological and Biochemical Zoology Journal by Lynn Martin. And she reported where they took mice, deer mice, and they starved them, in other words, gave them 30% fewer calories than they would normally need in a day. The mice didn't show any obvious behavioural differences compared with well-fed mice, but when they did blood tests on them, they had far fewer memory B cells. These are the cells that make antibodies that defend you against infections in the future. And so this shows that if you aren't getting a good enough diet, you will therefore have too little energy probably to put into mounting an effective immune response, and therefore you'll be more prone to an infection in the short term and more prone to an infection subsequently as well. And this fits with other studies that have been done where people who have been vaccinated with measles vaccine have then been followed up and people who weren't eating enough had far fewer anti-measles antibodies subsequently compared with people who are much better fed. So you should always feed a cold is the moral of that story but you should definitely not starve a fever. I just try and eat, I think, basically, even if you're feeling awful, try and get some food Basically, you need energy to to mount an immune response. You have to grow lots of cells, and that takes energy, and you've got to feed yourself. Makes sense. So there's no grounds for saying starve a fever. Anyway, uh, we've heard about vaccines offering one way to combat flu. We've also got antiviral drugs like Tamiflu to fall back on. But, as we've heard, the virus can mutate, and some of those forms can become drug-resistant. So is there anything else we can do? Well, Dr Nigel Dimmock is a researcher at Warwick University and he's looking at a different antiviral approach. He's infecting people with what are called protecting viruses and he's with us now. Nigel, what is a protecting virus? Well, Chris, a protecting virus is uh, something which is absolutely new in terms of treating virus infections. And the lovely thing about protecting viruses is that they are actually made by the virus itself. It's, a, it's a, a, a big mutant of the virus. Now, the, uh, the thing is that all viruses make them, as I say, and they are antiviral. So what we get is a virus, perfectly normal-looking virus, but it has a genome from which a large chunk has been excised by some accident of replication. Now, what happens is that when this gets into a cell alongside an infectious virus, the infectious virus multiplies itself, but it also multiplies the the defective form, which we call the protecting virus. And uh, because of the dynamics, there's much more of the protecting virus made than of the infectious stuff. So what happens is that the, uh, the, the protecting virus swamps out the infectious virus, the virus is aborted, and you get better, and it essentially buys time for the immune system to mop up the infection. So in a nutshell, what's happening? Uh, you have a flu virus replicating. Normally, it's got to copy all of its genetic material, make new progeny viruses, and they come out of the cell and infect other cells. And when they've infected lots of cells, that makes you feel sick, but you've also got the opportunity to infect other people. Uh, with a protecting virus, it's a modified form of the flu, which can arise by chance, but which has defective genetic material and is easier for it to grow than the full-on normal flu, and therefore it gets in the way, puts a spanner in the works, you make less flu, you're less infectious, you're less infected, and therefore you don't feel as bad. That's absolutely right. And there are, there are various uh, very nice things about this, is that you, you would be treated with this uh, protecting virus by, for instance, a nasal spray. Now, remember, it is 
it is flu virus, so it knows which cells to go to. It goes to exactly the same cells as the regular flu goes to, uh, but it's not infectious. So if that happens, then the protecting virus genome will sit in this cell and it will slowly decay, but it will provide you, uh, a single dose will provide you with protection for uh, certainly a number of days and perhaps weeks. Presumably also, Nigel, because of the way flu works with all of its genes in little miniature chromosomes, these so-called ribonuclear proteins, presumably it doesn't actually matter what strain of flu you get infected with, this interfering or protecting virus will basically protect you against virtually any type of flu within the sort of same group. Yes, this, this is one of the other very good points about protecting virus, is that unlike the vaccine, which is absolutely specific for the strain against which it was made, uh, this uh, protecting virus will protect you against any of the flu A's. You don't even know, need to know what you're infected with. As long as it's flu A, protecting virus will protect you uh, uh, willy-nilly. And presumably the, the other benefit is that you will make some antibody against flu anyway, which will help. But doesn't that mean then that if someone already has antibodies because they've already had a dose of the flu in the past, they might not get very well infected with your protecting virus and therefore they wouldn't get any benefit from it because they're already immune. Yes, this is, this is uh, a technical point which means that you, you have to uh, choose a virus to deliver the, the protecting genome uh, which people haven't had. And what we're using is actually a strain which was isolated in 1934, one of the very first flu strains to, uh, to, to be isolated. And it's the same one that is used as the workhorse, as we were hearing earlier, for production of vaccines. So there are not many people who are around in 1934 around now, and if they were, their antibodies are rather decayed. So it's a, it's a perfect delivery vehicle. But that's all very well. But then once you've used it once, those people presumably can't derive the benefit again because they will then be immune. So you'll have to no, change no, virus, no. won't you? No, that's not, that's not right. No, we, we give a very low dose. It's a far lower dose than you would get with a vaccine. And this is another key point about protecting virus because it does work at a very low level, so you don't need to produce as much as you would with a vaccine. And because it's at this low level, it's not stimulating immunity. Now, when you get infected, the, the virus that is produced is the, is the infecting virus, not the virus that delivered the, uh, the protecting genome. So you're not producing the, uh, more of the protecting virus, but you're producing simply more of the incoming infectious virus. So the immunity will be against the infectious virus, not the protecting virus. Which sounds encouraging. And just to finish off, can you tell us when we might be able to see this actually being used? Because obviously this is an experimental tool at the moment. To my knowledge, this has not gone into patients, has it? No, that's absolutely right. And uh, we've, we've done a huge amount of lab work. It works very well under experimental uh, situations. But the thing now is, is to get it into human clinical trials. Now, as, as you're aware, this is a, a hugely uh, uh, costly business. And what we're engaged with now uh, with the university is, is in uh, raising money to, uh, to, to carry out these, these clinical trials. And then we shall really know whether protecting virus is a real prospect for, for, for human medicine. So if anyone wants to uh, write your cheque, uh, just write your cheques out to Nigel Dimmock, Warwick University. I'm just joking, Nigel, but thank you very much for joining us. Great <laughs> to have you on the show. That is Nigel Dimmock. He's at Warwick University, and he's been developing what are called protecting viruses. These are flu viruses that can interfere with the growth of normal seasonal flu or pandemic strains of flu and actually stop them replicating. And therefore, they protect you against all types of...
of flu, and they're not specific in the same way that a vaccine is, so they're a very promising candidate. Thank you, Nigel. Helen. Now, let's go back to Ben and Dave, who have been trying to measure the speed of one of Dave's sneezes. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. Today we're using Dave's magic high-speed camera to measure the speed of a sneeze and see quite how fast the flu can really travel. We've come back to the office now. Dave, how are you feeling? Have you cleared the pepper from your nostrils? Just about now. That burning sensation deep within my nose is just about calmed down. What footage do we have? Well, we have a nice footage of me side-on in front of the camera sneezing i had a mouthful of water so you can actually see something because if you just sneeze air it's not a lot of use with a camera because you can't see it and we made sure that you sneezed in front of a white sheet of paper which we could use as a scale so let's have a look and see what actually happens i must admit you're not looking your best just pre-sneeze no i don't think anyone looks their best just pre-sneeze particularly me So as Dave sneezes, we can see that very quickly, quite a lot of water, a bit of snot and one or two other things come out of Dave's mouth and fly past that bit of paper really quickly. And I'd still say that's actually too quick to count. How are you going to tell how fast that is? Well, that's slowed down by a factor of 10 and it's far too fast to see. I've then slowed it down by another factor of 5, so 50th of the normal speed. And even that is really too fast for us to see exactly what's going on. So what I've done is split it into individual frames so we can go through the frames one at a time and actually see exactly what's going on. Now, how fast does a normal, say, television camera take frames? A television camera only takes a whole new frame 30 times a second. And your high-speed camera? That does 300. So for each frame, the change in time is one three-hundredth of a second? Yep, that's right. And how many frames did it take for the very front of your sneeze to travel the length of that sheet of paper. Okay, so looking at it frame by frame, there's various bits of the sneeze. Um, The first bit's a bit slower, but in the middle of the sneeze is the very fastest bit, and that takes about three frames to get across the piece of paper. So how fast is that? So that's a hundredth of a second for it to travel about 30 centimetres. So if it does 30 centimetres in a hundredth of a second, then that means that it should do three thousand centimeters in a second yep so 30 meters a second we can multiply that by 3.6 to get into kilometers an hour which gives us about 108 kilometers an hour 108 over 100 kilometers per hour for your sneeze there dave well this ties in very nicely to a question that we've had from joel plowright who says that somebody told me that we sneeze at about 100 miles an hour now we've made it about 100 kilometers an hour which is probably 66 70 miles an hour but he said what would happen if i sneezed in front of a speed camera well it's certainly going fast enough but dave do you think this would work I mean, you could certainly get sneezes, which were a lot more powerful than that. The pepper wasn't working particularly well, as you may have heard. So I'm pretty sure you could sneeze at considerably more than the speed limit, even the national speed limit. However, it depends on the camera. Certainly a radar camera isn't going to pick up the water flying out of your mouth at all. So it's never going to pick that up. Otherwise, it wouldn't work on a rainy day. And I'm pretty sure that even the laser ones, which might be slightly better at picking up small objects, are going to be designed not to be too put off by rain. Possibly if you sneezed out aluminium, then you might have a chance. (laughs) But then quite why you'd have a lung full of aluminium in the first place is probably best not to ask. So unfortunately, it might not set off a speed camera, although it's certainly going fast enough. But why do we actually sneeze? That's quite violent to expel something from our face 
at 100 kilometres an hour. What's it for? Well, if you breathe in some nasty powder, I mean, there's all sorts of things like fungal spores, which might do you some harm. Just dust isn't very good for you. The idea is to try and get it out of your lungs, get it out of your nose as quickly as possible. And it could be quite well stuck. So your body gives a really, really violent sneeze to expel it very quickly. Now, viruses like flu have used this to their advantage. They trigger this response, which makes you sneeze exceedingly violently. Then they sit in this mist of fine water, which is spread all the way around the room, and they get spread onto other people, and they continue to survive. Now, we were sneezing outdoors, so it would have got dispersed fairly easily. But in a room, that mist would hang about for quite a long time. And seeing as it's going so quickly, it would actually spread quite a long way. Yeah, I know I've sat next to someone sneeze or sneeze myself and for several seconds afterwards you can always feel this fine rain pattering down on your face. And that is some of probably some of the larger droplets of water. Flu particles are far smaller than that. If the water dries out then they'll be even lighter and can just get moved around by air currents inside a room. So there we go. If you're going to sneeze, then do try and catch it in a tissue and then put it in the bin. Otherwise, you could be spreading viruses around the room at 100 kilometres an hour. That's it for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon. Thanks, guys. And I'd just like to point out that it's not me that Dave was sitting anywhere near getting getting rained down on. I'm sure whenever I sneeze, I definitely catch it, bin it and kill it. That was Ben and Dave showing us that even a moderate sneeze can come in at 100 kilometres an hour or about 60 miles an hour. And you can see how quickly a virus would spread around any office if you sneeze, if every sneeze was that quick. And uh, you can see some of the pickies and the write-up of that on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. We've heard from Control Out Deviant on Twitter, who's listening live to the Naked Scientist at the moment. He says, love how people in the UK pronounce presumably. 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 I don't know how I, else I, you I would pronounce it. Say, but anyway, thank you for that insightful comment. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking about the flu this week. A few more questions on that before we catch up with Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week when we find out whether it's possible to taser an elephant. Before then, Ros is on the phone. Hello, Ros. Oh, good evening. I've got um, two questions. The first one is how many viruses can you actually... Um, sorry, inoculations, can you actually get out of the egg? Yes, Mira was talking about how eggs are used as culture vessels to grow vaccines. And the answer is that you put the virus into the egg, which has a chick inside. The chick turns into chicken soup with some flu added. You get the flu out, you purify it, and you get about three doses per egg. So if you do some maths, if you want to uh, immunise the entire population of the UK with, let's say, say 60 million, to make the numbers easy, 60 million people, you would need, just for the UK, 20 million laboratory-grade chicken's eggs. So a lot is the answer. That's a lot. My second um, question, how will people ensure that the, the eggs that are used don't contain the um, bird flu virus? The clue is in the name. They're laboratory-grade eggs, so these are high-grade disease-free, guaranteed to be safe chicken's eggs. And also, the testing that goes on is incredibly rigorous. They actually test the um, eggs, they test the progeny, and they test what comes out to make sure that there's nothing in there that they don't know is supposed to be in there. Thank you very much. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Bye. Well, I hope they're free-range eggs as well. I don't know about that. Anyway, we've had a question in from Claire and Andrew McCluskey, and they were wondering how flu actually infects our cells. 
The answer actually is the wave flu gets hold of cells that on the surface of the virus particle, and each virus particle is tiny, about one ten thousandth of a millimetre across. If you could zoom in on the surface, you'd see that it had these spikes on the surface of the virus particle. And those spikes are a structure called haemagglutinin. And haemagglutinin is a tiny protein which is like a molecular grappling hook. It's viral Velcro, if you like, to mix up metaphors. It gets hold of something called sialic acid, which is a chemical on the surface of the cells that lie in our nose and throat. And this enables the virus to grab hold of those cells, pull itself in very close, and then, because of that interaction... This makes the cell think it's something it has to take inside the cell. So the cell then does something called receptor-mediated endocytosis, which basically means it pulls the virus inside the cell, and the virus then releases its genetic material and it makes the cell productively infected. It's a bit like a Trojan horse, actually, because the Trojan horse was this juicy tidbit sitting outside the, the gates of Troy, and the guys inside the city thought, wow, that looks fantastic, we'll pull that inside because it looks good, and it goes inside the city, and then, of course, lurking inside are all these people who are then going to wreak havoc inside the city and that's basically what a flu virus does it hijacks the cell turns it into a virus factory and then it infects all the cells around it and all the people around you watch out for the trojan horses <laughs> we also heard from martin and he wants to know why flu is more prevalent in winter well we think flu spreads better in winter because of human behavior um, because it does this reproducibly in every country in the world in which it's winter time so it comes in winter time much more commonly it doesn't mean it goes away completely in summer but it comes much more commonly in winter we think that's because it spreads better in winter because of what humans do we go indoors more in winter so there's more people together indoors with the windows closed also it's less light and less bright and ultraviolet radiation and sunlight dries out the virus and kills it so it doesn't have so much of that around in winter so it finds it easier to persist on surfaces and in coughs and sneezes so it hangs around for longer and as a result you have a higher chance basically of passing it on so that's what we think goes on and then the big determinant the disproportionate determinant is the school year and the long summer school holiday powerfully knocks flu on the head because kids account for the vast and disproportionately large amount of spread of these viruses because they're virus factories. They all get it, they spread it amongst themselves and they all get highly infectious. And then what they do is they go home and give it to their parents and the parents then carry the infection to all of the other bits of the social strata through the workplace. Kids as virus factories, isn't that wonderful? Well, now it's time for Question of the Week and it's time to invite Diana O'Carroll back into the studio. Hello, Diana. Hello. Yes, this week we're going to venture to somewhere a little more exotic to find the answer to this question. Hi, it's Marie from Harrogate and um, my question is about tasers, the tasers which are used for crowd control and stunning criminals. If you had a taser and you tasered an elephant... Would you actually live to tell the tale? How strong are these things? I must say I've never met a stunning criminal. But our answer comes from a real elephant catcher in Africa, Doe Grobler. Now, he was standing on the top of a sand dune in the wilds of Mozambique when he gave this answer, so the audio quality was a little bit too rugged to be broadcast. But here's what he had to say. Elephants do not like any electric shocks, and they will usually react quite severely to them. Doe and his team actually use electric fencing in a number of wildlife reserves in Africa, and the electric fencing running around an enclosure is generally in the region of nine to 12,000 volts, whereas a stun gun will jettison about 50,000 volts. Now, Doe's team will teach an elephant about an electric shock by putting it in a small pen that's about two acres in size, and they'll keep it in there for about 24 to 48 hours, 
And when they've been in contact with an electric fence in that situation, they will never touch an electric fence again, poor elephant. But his team also use electric prodders to move elephants into a truck to transport them. I guess it's all for a good cause in the end. Um, but a taser certainly wouldn't floor an elephant, but it might scare it. And in most cases, the elephant would try to move away from the stun gun, but uh, I wouldn't want to be there if the elephant decided to take some revenge. On our forum, Chemistry for Me said that animal rights people would be after you if you were doing this. And Don once said it might be a better idea to pick on a mouse rather than an elephant. <laughs> and it seems we've got a, another animal to take better care of in next week's question. Hello, this is Alvin Raj from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Why is chocolate poisonous for dogs? How is it that something as lovely as chocolate can be bad? Let us know what you think next week by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or by writing your answers on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, with this week's Question of the Week. And you can have that chocolatey festive question answer for you next week. You can also catch up with Question of the Week via our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW. It's there as a podcast in its own right, also available on iTunes. Thanks, Diana. Robert wants to know, how well do hand sanitizers work? Oh, yeah. Well, this is when you're going into the dining room or you go into hospital and you see these alcohol ham rubs. And things. I carry a bottle around with me and I'm travelling yeah. overseas, actually. Depends what virus you're dealing with, actually. Um, if you're dealing with flu, they work quite well because flu is what's called an enveloped virus and on the surface of the virus particle is an oily bag which, if you put alcohol on there, breaks it apart and denatures the virus. If, on the other hand, you're playing around with something like norovirus, the winter vomiting, bug this does not have one of these oily envelopes around the outside of the virus it's a non-envelope virus very hard husky particle and as a result of that it does not respond to a ham rub so ham rubs will not get rid of norovirus they are immune all you get is a pure culture of norovirus on your hand instead and so the way to do with those is soap and water not because the soap kills the noro but rubbing the skin actually detaches it so you get rid of it sounds good to me well, that's pretty much it, I'm afraid, for this week. We have almost run out of time. I have to say a very big thank you to our guests this week, Adrian Gibbs, John Dillon and Nigel Dimmock, and also to our wonderful production team, Ben Vowsler, Mira Senthalingam, Dave Ansell, Tom Simpkins and Diana O'Carroll. Now, next week, it's our Christmas show extravaganza. We'll be offering you all the festive fun of the Naked Scientists at Christmas time, including an opportunity to meet your meat. Yes, we'll be looking at the anatomy of Christmas dinner, quite literally, and also how churches have been intelligently designed, as opposed to evolved, to make your carols sound fantastic. What's the science behind it? Join us here at the Naked Scientists next week to find out, and if you have any Christmas-related questions or challenges for us, then do send them in. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.